Thanks, Austin. We coordinated these shirts specifically for your enjoyment. I hope you are enjoying it. Thanks for being here today. My name is Matt. Um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, we are, as Austin mentioned, continuing to look at Matthew chapter 7. We've sort of pumped the brakes a little bit, uh, backed up from the lectionary, or, or slowed down at least, once we hit the Sermon on the Mount this year, earlier in the year, and we've spent several months there, and probably will be there several more months. No, I've, I've decided that there are two more weeks after this week, and then we're, we're going to move on. But don't hold me to that. We may change that plan. Um, we're going to talk a little bit as we look at Matthew 7 today about self-care, self-care. I think it's fair to say that we live in the age of self-care, and I also want to say from the beginning that I think that's actually, by and large, a good thing. I think that's a positive development where mental and emotional health care are being embraced and sought after increasingly, where, where the value of rest is acknowledged and there is a willingness to resist a culture of faster speeds and, and increased demands. I personally benefit from both of those developments. I, I benefit from therapy and receiving counsel and routinely disengaging from work to enjoy God and to remember what being a human is about. I think a problem emerges, though, when our vision of self-care becomes completely isolated, when it ends with me. I think that's a nearsighted view of self-care because I think it's a nearsighted view of our humanity. I am not just an isolated individual. Genuine self-care surely can't require the elimination of everything that makes me uncomfortable or challenges me. Oh, this person over here is challenged. I, I didn't mean to point at you, Destin. But <laughs> there's this person that is challenging for me. Um, I, I don't vibe with their personality, so I'm just going to cut them out of my life. Because life is too short to put up with something that is uncomfortable or to put something I want on the back burner momentarily or to be patient. So I'm just going to erect all of these boundaries in every area of my life to buffer me from all discomfort. Surely self-care, as we approach it as followers of Jesus, can't be reduced to that. You know, Henry Nouwen once wrote that spiritual maturity is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. We're going to talk about that in more detail next week. But if that is true, and, and I think in many ways it is, if that is true, comfort can't be the primary marker of our pursuit of self-care. So while self-care can and I think is a, a really positive thing, it's also possible that we would understand it and pursue it in a way that opposes the ethic of Jesus. Question I want to be willing to ask myself, is it possible for me to care for self to the point where I ignore the cares and concerns of others? Where I'm no longer willing to sacrifice at all for the sake of another? I don't do anything I don't want to do. I think that's possible, and I feel that urge, and I think Jesus shows us a different way. 
we're going to explore that today. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Matthew 7, a few verses in Matthew 7, where Jesus invites his followers to present petitions to the Father, that, that repetitive to, to ask, seek, and knock. And we explored over the past couple of weeks some of the interpretive possibilities with those imperatives. But one thing we stressed, wherever we land on that spectrum, one thing we stressed was the abundant generosity of God who gives good gifts to those who ask. God isn't limited to hear or care only for the most noble requests. So we don't restrict our lives of prayer to only what we happen to have defined as virtuous requests because we trust in the limitless abundance of God. Our God is incredibly gracious and generous. It's what we focused on over the past couple of weeks. What a natural transition then to this next thought. If this is how generous our God is, Perhaps we should be willing to radiate the same generous spirit to others. One thing I love about the sermon on, well, I, I love it and I hate it. I love it because it's good for me. Um, but, but I love that Jesus sort of puts all of us on blast as he describes the ethic of God's kingdom and invites us into that life. So he, on one hand, rejects Maybe the legalism where we try to achieve and earn salvation on our own or rejects that sort of legalism that is constantly seeking to add new laws or regulations to try to clarify what life is in God is about. At the same time, he invites us to reject ethical or moral license which authorizes us to live any way we want to live. There is a very specific way of life that Jesus describes and invites us to embody throughout this sermon. So lest the preceding material from the sermon seem too complex to navigate or too demanding to live out, we see Jesus here begin to whittle it down to its most simplistic terms. When we think about ethical living in the midst of community, living with other people, it boils down really to this most golden of rules. We're going to make it through one verse in Matthew 7 today. This is why it's taking us so long. Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Assuming most of us have heard this before, this has commonly been referred to as the golden rule, an instruction so ubiquitous one need not be religious in general or Christian specifically to have at least some familiarity with it. Treat others the way you want to be treated by them. Now from the beginning, we need to acknowledge that this instruction from Jesus is not altogether unique, not necessarily original. The, the popular and influential Jewish leader Hillel, who died just a few years after the birth of Jesus, taught this way, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to yourself. He said that is the whole Torah. The rest of it is just explanation. Even before that, the Greek philosopher Socrates 
several hundred years before the life of Jesus. He taught, what stirs you to anger when done to you by others, do not do to others. The Chinese philosopher Confucius, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. This was a fairly widespread accepted ethic that spanned various cultures. So while this instruction from Jesus is not altogether unique, it does seem as though Jesus puts a fairly novel twist on this widely recognized principle of wisdom. All of the above examples that we've just looked at are negative in nature. Do not do this. Or, or maybe we would think of them as passive. Because I can avoid doing harm to another. Or I can avoid doing to my neighbor what is hateful to myself by simply avoiding that person that I don't want to be around. If I cut them out of my life, it becomes fairly easy to avoid doing harm to them. They're gone, so I can put a check in that box of not doing harm. That requires very little of me. The invitation from Jesus into the ethic of his kingdom, though, is much more radical. It is active, not passive. It, it is initiatory, not reactive. It's not simply don't act in ways that are obviously harmful to other people. It's also much more specific than something as potentially nebulous as love one another. While all of that is implied and elsewhere is stated explicitly by Jesus, this instruction puts a little more meat on the bones. This is how you love. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. So we find an expansion of that general ethical principle that guides our human engagement, an expansion from the bare minimum to something much more extreme. So this simplification is an expansion, even though on the surface, as New Testament scholar Scott McKnight has noted, it appears to be an extreme ethical simplification that brings clarity to how we engage with other human beings. That extreme ethical simplification is actually a radical expansion that not only invites but requires creativity and imagination. We are invited to use our minds. Imagine, think about, meditate on how we want to be treated. Think about those things that provide care or nourish us. Let your minds wander. The invitation in and of itself, I think, lends some credence to the pursuit of self-care. Those desires and needs that we all experience for care and support, those aren't intrinsically wrong. They're actually quite good, but they can become misguided. Now, elsewhere, Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He sums up the entire law and says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And another, he says, is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. But loving myself and then loving my neighbor like I love myself can't be reduced to 
to something like, whatever I want, I get. I think it requires much more careful consideration. We talked a little bit about this last week when we thought about the words from Jesus. He describes our lives of prayer. He says, a father who is asked by a child for a fish is not going to instead give a serpent, something that is going to cause harm. Conversely, if a father is asked for a serpent thinking it is a fish, is a, is a good loving father going to give that to a child? Of course not. So love for ourselves or love for others can't be reduced to something like a blank check for whatever we want or limitless comfort. I think about my relationship with Nanette or even my relationship with other good friends. Love in those relationships actually at times, with Nanette a lot of times, requires the discomfort of difficult conversations. And I want that. I need it, though it is not easy, but caring for myself often requires discomfort. So Jesus says, Use your imagination, or seems to imply this. Use your imagination. Maybe even think of your self-care routine, your preferences regarding what makes you feel valued, what makes you feel loved and cared for. Think about those, and then extend that to other people. Don't neglect care for yourself. Don't run yourself into the ground in a way that burns you out and empties your cup so that you have nothing left to pour out for others. I think we've probably all been there at times. And it's not good for us. And it does no good for anybody else. I think it's significant that this call from Jesus to love others, to treat others in a particular way, is founded upon our care and love for ourselves. Author Parker Palmer said, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. And I think even in that statement, we find a bit of this nuance. I think his statement is itself a recognition that appropriate self-care is receiving rest, receiving support, pursuing health, being nourished and strengthened, but then it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end with me. Having been cared for and having received, I now offer myself to others from a place of health where I am able to sacrificially serve and love. So perhaps this invitation from Jesus in Matthew 7 is the principal way we prevent a healthy notion of self-care from turning into something as personally destructive and relationally destructive as uh, self-obsession at the expense of other people. Don't forego health, but your health isn't only about or for your personal comfort. So I want to suggest today that the church is actually, when functioning properly, 
when our eyes are directed to and our lives oriented toward Jesus and his sacrificial love, I want to suggest that the church is actually a great place for us to practice this ethic that Jesus invites us into. Perhaps some would push back and say, well, I I don't need the church to practice this ethic. And maybe on some hand that's true. I don't need the church to practice this ethic because I have my group of really close friends and I regularly practice and embody this golden rule among them. And I would gently remind us that that is not the same thing. What's the primary difference? Well, I get some choice in who my closest friends are. And that's fine. And, you know, we all have those sort of soul brothers and sisters, those with whom there is an ease of relationship. We, we don't have to try. Our defenses are down. We're, we're almost always on the same wavelength. I have friendships like that. And I think they're really important. But Jesus' call here to treat others how I want to be treated extends far beyond that. So I get some choice when it comes to who my closest friends are. I don't have that choice when it comes to the body of Christ. So if I am closely connected to the body, hopefully I will be able to begin to discern whether I am, in fact, putting this ethic into practice. Because the church is a place where I am constantly going to be exposed to people with whom I may not mesh with. And I think that's actually a good thing. I hope this is a place where we are routinely exposed to people we may not mesh with. The 19th century philosopher and author Henry David Thoreau wrote a book entitled Walden in which he tells uh, the story of his move into the woods of Massachusetts where he built a cabin near Walden Pond and spent a couple of years living in solitude and pursuing simplicity and a connection to his natural surroundings. In the story, he explains how living in the middle of nowhere, as he describes it, with his nearest neighbor no closer than a mile away, in that environment, he found a sense of peace that he couldn't find anywhere when surrounded by people and society at large. And at one point, he makes this statement, I never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. Maybe you feel that. I never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. When I read this years ago, I found much of his story um, fascinating, especially that chapter on solitude. And to be fair, I think it's a practice that can actually greatly benefit our lives. Yet I don't think it is the pinnacle of human existence or the ultimate goal that we are after. Only if I am living for myself alone can a life of absolute and perpetual solitude bring meaning. And if I am living for myself, the notion of self-care inevitably turns in on itself and becomes a self-defeating proposition because I can't understand my humanity in isolation from other people. So maybe a question for us to consider, well, I guess the first question, can self-care be a Christian pursuit? And I think unquestionably yes. I think Jesus himself models this for us as, as we see him entering into these rhythms of separation renewal, of rest, times of prayer removed from those who are following him. 
Maybe we even see it in what is potentially a different type of friendship he has in a place like Bethany, surrounded by some of his closest friends, siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I think this is all an important part of the spiritual life, caring for our souls, caring for ourselves holistically. But self-care is only a Christian pursuit if we understand it in a Christian way, which acknowledges that myself is connected to and must live in relation to other people. And I have a responsibility toward my fellow human beings. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, I know many of you are familiar with him, important Christian thinker, and he repeatedly subverts the assumption that caring for myself happens or even can happen in isolation or, or that it should be my principal aim even if that's at the expense of somebody else. In his work, No Man is an Island, he wrote this. We do not exist for ourselves alone. And it is only when we are fully convinced of this fact that we begin to love ourselves properly and thus also love others. Only when we acknowledge and begin to recognize that we do not exist for ourselves alone. Such a simple thought. But if that could become our mantra, if that could be the reminder that I recite to myself every morning upon waking, I, I think my approach to life, my approach to self-care would take new shape. Yes, I am going to care for myself today. I will implement practices that nourish a healthy mind, body, and soul. I will work to take care of myself in a holistic way, but that is just the beginning. An outflow of self-care must be, it must be an extension of that care to others. I proactively, not reactionary, I proactively treat others how I want to be treated. If self-care ends with me, I think I've missed the point. Self-care is an investment and a process of stewarding my life. The one gift I have, as Palmer said, that I might be able to pour it out for others. Take us back to the words of Jesus. We, we, read, through, we read through these words repeatedly throughout the year. We read them about a month ago from Mark chapter 8. Jesus says this, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Listen to how Eugene Peterson put it in his paraphrase the message. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? Self-care that causes me to lose my humanity, 
my sense of connection to other people, that is not self-care. That is further isolating, and I cannot live in isolation. Self-care that leads me to sacrifice my humanity and the call to treat others the way I want to be treated is not a Christian vision of self-care. So this is where, where I hope to lead us. May, may we be inspired today to creatively, imaginatively explore the ways in which we receive care, the life-giving practices we are engaged in that nourish us, the healthy functioning relationships that strengthen us, acts of service and sacrificial love that are poured out on our behalf. May we explore all of those and grow in an appreciation for them. But as we explore them, may we be inspired to go and do likewise, to receive care and support, not just to become comfortable, but that we might steward the gift of our lives to pour it out for others. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand as we celebrate around the table of our Lord today. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. When you join us at the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. We, we find a very clear model in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of the path we are walking, one that doesn't forego health, but one that embraces and receives, one that has our cups filled, that we might pour them out on behalf of others. I invite you into this way of life again. We receive go out to pour out. Would you join us at the table of our Lord? I'm going to say a prayer by way of invitation. Lord, open our eyes again to the ways in which you have invited us to be truly human to find health, to find restoration, but then to be agents of health for those we come into contact with. May you strengthen us, spark thoughts in our imaginations about how we might proactively treat others and love others how we want to be treated and how we receive love. Oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. 
Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?